The old pilot's plain tales. High flight. In a few days, it will be the 11th of December, 2016. And we'll be worrying about who to invite for our holiday celebrations. But 75 years ago, the world was a vastly different place. Britain had been conducting a lonely war against the might of Germany. But that was about to change. The Japanese fleet, under the command of Admiral Yamamoto, had just struck Pearl Harbor, without warning, severely damaging and destroying eight battleships, ten warships, 230 aircraft and killing 2,403 American servicemen and civilians. The sneak attack had been conducted without a formal declaration of war. To quote President Roosevelt, he pronounced that the 7th of December would be a date which will live in infamy. A few days later, on the 11th of December, Adolf Hitler declared war on the United States. America was entering the Second World War. However, some Americans had already made the very personal and remarkably brave decision to help the beleaguered sovereign countries that make up the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. The battle that was underway wasn't being conducted on the ground, but in the skies above it. The Battle of Britain was to stretch the Royal Air Force to its absolute limits, and on occasions every operational squadron assigned to protect the South was simultaneously engaged with the enemy. There was nothing in reserve. British factories were producing fighters as fast as humanly possible, but they were barely keeping up with the losses. During one two-week period, 295 fighters were totally destroyed and a further 171 badly damaged, whereas only 269 Spitfires and Hurricanes were produced. This, however, wasn't Air Vice Marshal Stuffy Dowding's greatest concern. It was his pilots. During the same two-week period, 103 pilots were killed and 128 were wounded, and there was no way to churn new pilots out of a factory. Those pilots who came to the British Isles during this time were valuable beyond belief, and none more so than those who filled the Eagle squadrons. There were pilots who flew with the RAF from many nations, a considerable number of Poles and New Zealanders, Australians, Belgians, South Africans, Free French, Southern Rhodesians, even a Jamaican and a Palestinian pilot joined in the battle. But today we shall talk about the American pilots and one special one from amongst them. The Eagle Squadrons were the brainchild of Charles Sweeney, a wealthy businessman who was living in London. He had been recruiting American citizens to fight with a US volunteer detachment in the French Air Force, echoing the Lafayette Escadrille of World War I. Following the fall of France, a dozen of these pilots crossed the English Channel and joined the RAF. 
Along with his rich society contacts and with the assistance of the World War I ace Billy Bishop, Sweeney continued to recruit and train pilots at a cost of over $100,000 each. These pilots either joined the RAF or the Royal Canadian Air Force. Most Eagle Squadron pilots did not have a college education or prior military experience, a requirement for the U.S. Army Air Corps, and what's more, by joining foreign military units, they were technically breaking the laws of the officially neutral U.S. government. In the end, three Eagle Squadrons were formed, numbers 71, 121 and 133, and they flew as part of the RAF until they were turned over to the fledgling 8th Air Force and became the 4th Fighter Group in 1942. Of note, about a 100 Eagle pilots had been killed, were missing or prisoners, and those who transferred wore their American military wings, but they retained their RAF wings, which were worn in miniature on the opposite side of their uniforms. One pilot who made the brave decision to join his brothers-in-arms to fight the Nazis was John McGee, Jr. John's parents were missionaries working in Shanghai when he was born, his father was American, formerly of Scottish and Irish roots, and his mother English. He grew up in China, learning to speak Chinese before English, but his formal education was at rugby school in England and Avon Old Farm School in Connecticut. He won a scholarship to Yale, but never took up his place. Whatever motivated him to come to the aid of the British, I don't know, but I suspect that love of his mother's country, or perhaps his love of Eleanor Lyon, the rugby headmaster's daughter, had a lot to do with it. Whilst at school in England, John had become interested in poetry, and the lovely Eleanor was the inspiration of many of his poems. McGee crossed the border into Canada in 1940, joining the Royal Canadian Air Force and beginning his pilot training in Ontario. He completed his training, receiving his wings in June 1941, and was sent to England where he converted onto the Spitfire. With his training complete, John was posted to number 412 Squadron at RAF Digby in Lincolnshire. He had only been in the country a few months, when he flew a newer model of Spitfire up to an altitude of over 30,000 feet. It was only his seventh Spitfire flight, and as he orbited and climbed upwards, he was struck with the inspiration for a poem. His friend and fellow pilot, Michael Lebas, an Argentinian, ran into him afterwards and recalled that he was waxing lyrical about his flight. I urged him, though not very seriously, Lebas said, that since he had always wanted to be a poet, he should put his feelings down in words. He thereupon sat down in the mess and composed, in a very short time, the first draft of High Flight, written, literally, on the back of an envelope. The poem was completed later that day. 
McGee proceeded to write a letter, dated September the 3rd, 1941, to his parents. In it he mentioned, I'm enclosing a verse I wrote the other day. It started at 30,000 feet and was finished soon after I landed. On the back of the letter were the words of his poem, entitled High Flight. McGee was still only aged 19 years old when he got airborne in a Spitfire AD-291, which had the squadron markings Victor Zulu Hotel on the fuselage. Departing from RAF Wellingor, he was flying with three of his colleagues. Also in the air that day was an Oxford trainer from RAF Cranwell, flown by one Ernest Aubrey Griffin, also aged 19, an RAF volunteer reserve pilot. As McGee and his flight descended through a hole in the clouds near the hamlet of Roxholm, at about 1,400 feet, his spitfire struck the Oxford. A farmer watched the aftermath of the collision and saw McGee struggling to push back his canopy. By the time he was free to stand on his seat and jump, he was too low for his parachute to open and he died on impact. Griffin, the Oxford pilot, was also killed. Part of the official letter to McGee's parents read, Your son's funeral took place at Scopwick Cemetery, near Digby Aerodrome, at 2.30pm on Saturday the 13th of December 1941. The service being conducted by Flight Lieutenant S.K. Belton the Canadian Padre of this station. He was accorded full service honours, the coffin being carried by pilots of his own squadron. A brave young man who had not even seen combat, John Gillespie McGee Jr. has a very special place in the hearts of generations of pilots. Not for the sacrifice of his life, to help those in another country defeat a terrible foe, although that should have been enough, but for the words he wrote a short while before. When his parents received the poem in a letter before John's death, his father, who was the curate of St John's Episcopal Church in Washington, D.C., reprinted it in church publications. The poem became more widely known through the efforts of the Librarian of Congress, who included it in an exhibition of poetry called Faith and Freedom in 1942. The manuscript copy of the original poem remains at the Library of Congress. During World War II, Hollywood stars toured the United States on a mission to raise war bonds. Famed actress Merle Oberon recited High Flight of part of this show. Orson Welles also recited it during an episode of Command Performance in 1943. The poem became a favourite amongst aviators and astronauts. It is the official poem of the Royal Canadian Air Force and the Royal Air Force, and has to be recited from memory by 4th class cadets at the United States Air Force Academy. General Robert Lee Scott, Jr. included the poem in his book, God is My Co-Pilot, 
and astronaut Michael Collins took it into space on his flight in Gemini 10. President Ronald Reagan quoted from it during his address to the nation following the Challenger disaster. Oh, I have slipped the surly bonds of earth and danced the skies on laughter-silvered wings. Sunward I've climbed and joined the tumbling mirth of sun-split clouds and done a hundred things you have not dreamed of. Wheeled and soared and swung high in the sunlit silence, hovering there. I've chased the shouting wind along and flung my eager craft through footless halls of air. Up, up the long delirious burning blue I've topped the windswept heights with easy grace where never a lark or even eagle flew. And while with silent lifting mind I've trod the high untrespass sanctity of space, put out my hand and touched the face of God. The poem is found on many gravestones, but perhaps none is more deserving than that of the author, John Gillespie McGee, Jr., who modestly has just the opening and concluding lines on the white military marker over his grave in the Holy Cross Cemetery in Scottwick, Lincolnshire, not far from where he died. 